I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This episode of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of Parallax Views on patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And those supporters get a producer's credit shoutout on each and every edition of the show. So producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Chance, Justin, Nick W., and The Mere Project, M-E-E-R. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. Woodstock 99. It was going to be the biggest party on the planet. But that's not what any of us remember it for. What the hell happened? It really felt like it was flower power and coming together in harmony. I've never seen this many people. It was peace and love and music. That was it. It felt like a crowd that could turn at any time. It was like this unleashing, all this energy. There was no control. The environment was just very male ego. I started seeing large groups of dudes surrounding women. There was a lack of respect. Given the climate of the guys there, I'm not surprised by it. Hey guys, back, give us some room. You're getting scary here. What sort of setup do you have for accountability? How many security guards do you have on site? They were glossing over all of that. Big fat ripoff. They're all about making money off us, and we're pissed. But the show was going to go on. I think we need to see a whole hell of a lot more. When you see it with your own eyes, it's just 10 times more shocking. Once you become part of a herd, you become like animals. Things are just getting out of control. And all of these people were acting like animals. We got fires everywhere. Look at this. Kerosene, match. Hey there, Parallax Seeds listeners. What you just heard was the audio from the trailer for the new Netflix documentary, Trainwreck, 
Woodstock 99, which is actually one of two recent documentaries dealing with the Woodstock Music Festival of 1999 and the riots and sexual assaults that ensued there. Joining us on this edition of the program is Jason Miles of the This Is Revolution podcast, who took issue with the two aforementioned documentaries in a piece for Sublation magazine entitled Remembering Woodstock 99, where he questions the new metal bashing blame the music aspects of the two documentaries, argues for a connection between capitalism and what went down at Woodstock 99, and pushes back against 60s counterculture nostalgia. Jason has experience working at music festivals and also is the frontman of the metal band Bitter Lake. So he has experience in the world of music. And I think you'll find the following conversation fascinating. So without any further ado, Jason Miles of this is Revolution podcast on his article, Remembering Woodstock 99 for Sublation Magazine. Welcome to Parallax Views, uh, a guest that I've been wanting to have on for a while. And, you know, time just flies. So we're finally getting it all together now. Jason Miles of the band Bitter Lake and also uh, the co-host of this is revolution one of my favorite podcasts how are you doing uh, thanks jg um thanks for bringing up the band i always forget that i'm a musician first <laughs> i i love how you uh you describe yourself as the uh screamer slash singer for bitter lake <laughs> yeah yeah there's very little singing in that but you know <laughs> Hence why my throat is out. I was, you know, keeping myself awake on the drive back over here, screaming a bunch of stupid metal songs <laughs> on the way back home. How so are you? What well, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Uh, one, one thing I wanted to get into before we get into the main topic, which is the uh, article you wrote for Sublation Magazine, Remembering Woodstock, uh, Woodstock 99 article. Uh, I guess mm -hmm. I wanted to talk about how did you get into... Uh, the the sort of metal scene and punk music. Mm. Um, I guess the short story is kind of where I'm from in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, there's a lot of different things. Sorry, there's a car. The one car that wants to ride on here when I'm on. Uh, there's a lot of different things jumping off in the East Bay where I'm from, and definitely in the kind of the time frame I was in junior high to high school, like that time when you're discovering new stuff. Uh, a lot of guys were, were forming bands and were, were getting into different kinds of music. Um, I had an older cousin, technically he's a cousin, but I always called him an uncle, uh, like much older. Like I think he's in his seventies now. Um, and he listened to like crazy punk music. You know, he turned me on to like Bad Brains, Dead Kennedys, and and uh, uh, stuff like that when I was uh, probably nine, ten years old. So all those things coupled, like mixed together, was like the perfect combination to to be able to explore 
uh, different genres. You know, MTV was jumping off at the same time. I'm not going to lie and say, you know, I was immune to pop culture. <laughs> I'm 45, so I grew up in the 80s. I mean, I, I'll be honest. I, I, I used to collect like old episodes of um, like Headbangers Ball in 120 oh, minutes. Oh, so. dude, <laughs> dude. And that was like a thing, like stay up and watch Headbangers Ball. And I would go, you know, we'd discuss it and critique it you know, the next day or not the next day, but you know, Monday at school, like, dude, they only played one Exodus video. That's hella whack. They played all that trickster stuff. And you know, who the hell is Britney Fox? <laughs> <laughs> so this, so no, no, yeah, yeah. this this is a good segue into your piece for uh Sublation magazine, mm -hmm. uh remembering Woodstock ninety nine, which came out on the twenty second of August. And I guess this is in response to uh, two documentaries that recently came out on Woodstock 99, and they're both kind of anti-new metal music. Uh, so <laughs> we'll, we'll get into that, but uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the documentaries that came out. Uh, there was one on sure. Netflix, and also there, there's another one, Amazon. right? Okay. A Amazon. Amazon, another one. Or HBO, which is Amazon for me here in Mexico. Oh, actually, it's, anyway, um, HBO and Netflix. Um I watched one and discovered the other one kind of on accident. And it's not the first thing I've seen on Woodstock 99. I don't know if you remember, there was a lot of news stories that jumped out right when it happened. Um, and MTV was still a thing that played videos and had quote unquote news shows at the time. So, and, and VH1 as well. So there was a lot of um, news pieces. And since they were there, they had really good footage but they were taking opinions of the more quote unquote traditional artists. So it was a lot of like Sheryl Crow interviews and, you know, Dave Matthews interviews and interviewing the MTV news staff that was there. And their perspective was very different. They really blamed the music. And then these documentaries put some blame on the promoters, but that blame seemed to be like whatever vision these guys had in the 60s had been lost by the 90s. But both documentaries overall almost seems uh, generational bashing, as if this was the boomers' last hurrah to say we were the great generation. <laughs> and it's Gen X that led to this degradation of society. And I disagreed with that wholeheartedly in watching it because I knew a little bit about the original Woodstock being a bit of a disaster. And so I did a little more research into, I shouldn't say a little more, I did some research into Woodstock, the original. And one thing no one talks about the, the original Woodstock is there were sexual assaults at the original Woodstock. And it's kind of complex when you think about it because this is also around the time that oral contraception is giving women more freedom. So that freedom also becomes a subconscious yes, almost. So there's one reported rape in Woodstock 69. And let's think about the, the, the social um, stigma of reporting a sexual assault in 1969. Only one. There's only four in 1999. When you watch the 1999 documentary, one of them, they say, well, there's only four reported, but we know there's more. Well, you don't know, but you're assuming, but let's just say you're right. 
I believe there's more. I feel very confident that there was more than just four reported sexual assaults in 99. I also believe that there was more than just four reported sexual assaults in 1969. I was, I was going to say real go quick, ahead. if I could, mm -hmm. I think go it's ahead. funny. Um, you know, uh, people will talk about, yeah, Woodstock 69. And then look what happened. The, the, the death of the counterculture and everything has degraded. And that's how we got Woodstock 99. Uh, but I, I look at it and I think you only mentioned it once in the article, but I, I always like to, respond to people that sort of glamorize or um, mythologize, I should say, the, the 60s counterculture and say, you all forgot about Altamont. <laughs> Four months later. Four months later. And, and check this out. I don't even know if you know this, JG. Michael Lang, who's one of the main people behind Woodstock, is the main guy behind Altamont. So the man who is put on this pedestal as being like the pinnacle of concert promotion um is this is the man that's kind of responsible for the debacle that is 69 but, but 69 just what really saves it is the movie right because these some of these images from 69 that are iconic like hendrix's star spangled banner it's played in front of no one it's actually played in front of a sea of trash because those cats trashed that place they were so just buried in lawsuits that they dissolved their, their partnership. The original Woodstock was never about an anti-war or any sort of countercultural movement. It was venture capitalists that were looking for an investment. And they met two music people, established music people, not aspiring musicians. This isn't, you know, Charles Manson wanting to get a record deal. These are people that are, you know, implanted in the industry. And they had a plan to build a recording studio in Woodstock, New York. And the original concert was supposed to be a lot smaller. Uh, they ended up pre-selling tons of tickets and they thought it was going to be a great deal, but they had to move location last minute, which usually means your festival's canceled, uh, had media, or had information flowed the way it flows now, Woodstock 69 would have been fire festival, right? Um, and bands wouldn't show up. You're moving, what? You're moving last minute. You got to build out an infrastructure. There's no power. Oh no, we're not going there. So 69 and 94 kind of have similar problems. And yeah, Woodstock six, 94 was a disaster. Woodstock 94 is a disaster, but it doesn't, it, it, much like 69, people get in free. Free changes everything. Um, and not just get in free, but because they had cut, you know, big holes out of a chain link fence, people could come to and from with uh, alcohol and food. So now you're not, you know, spending a lot of money. A music festival is literally designed to lock you in a small city for three to four days and get money from you 24 hours a day. That's all it is from someone that's worked inside of them, worked inside Coachella. And I'm not talking about setting up scat money, not that that's anything belittling about that, but I actually worked in the financial side of things. So they're designed to lock you in a room and, and, and get, you know, have you engage in commerce for 24 hours for three to four days. And 99 these guys figured they fixed all their problems from the previous 25 years. We have a solid location with a solid wall. <laughs> we have fencing. We can keep everybody in. Um, and it's the same people that were doing the 69 one, right? I mean, they, they were trying to two. recoup the costs. Yeah. Yeah. Two, two. Well, remember, they're licensing things at the same time. 
they dissolved their corporation, I think, 11 days after 69, because, again, they got hit with like 80 lawsuits. Um, Lang and one of the other original uh, uh, investors and the original investors are like trust fund kids. Um, they decided to, to try to take advantage of the name in 94 and it worked. It was a kind of a perfect time if you think about it, because musically and, and I, and I love your opinion on film and I, and I want to hear what you have to say about this. There's this moment where I think there's a lot of nostalgia for that era in 94, like grunge or whatever you want. I don't think it's a genre, but <laughs> the idea of grunge. I, I always tell people, I always tell people, uh, you know, I don't know what grunge is other than like alt rock bands from Seattle. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. It's not because right, it doesn't, it's not like a genre. Like what does a grunge band sound like? Melvin's, uh, but the idea of these bands being important for a lot of journalists, younger journalists, it's a resurgence for them of the 60s. So they can finally stop trying to cover Motley Crue. And now they can cover these quote unquote important bands like Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Soundgarden. And it really is the death nail to to hair metal. And the death nail to new metal or to grunge is kind of, you know, the death of Kurt Cobain. If you think about it um and so that's why 94 is kind of an important year for why that woodstock is looked at so differently you know that's that the same things are happening in 94 that happens in 99 that actually happens in 69 there's only one shower in 1969 for 300,000 people yeah Wow. 1990, 1994 they also have sewage problems where there's overflowing porta potties and rain People are playing in, you know, sewage mud filled with feces, throwing that mud on stage. The performers are performing in it and kind of they're giving it to them. They're, they're taking it in. And Green Day has a performance that rock critics love, a mud-filled performance. Nine Inch Nails has a mud-filled performance that these rock critics love. And once again, Woodstock is an important music festival. By the time we get to 99, Music's changed, but Woodstock has a brand, you know, it's not just the best selling bands of that era, even though 69 is more akin to we just grabbed the best selling bands that we could find. Um, 99, the best selling rock bands of that era are either old acts like Santana or the new metal kids. Pop music is dominated by teen music. Yeah, like Instinct, Backstreet Boys. Yeah, yeah. Best selling album of '99 is is uh, Backstreet Boys, as Millennium. And hip hop wise, the best selling albums are like uh, Will Smith. I think has one of the best selling rap albums of that year. Um, country music is topping the charts, which doesn't even sound like Willie Nelson country of you know the outlaw country of the late '70s. Um, it's more pop music with a twang in the in the vocal. <laughs> so, um, and, and does that lend itself to a three-day festival? These are the questions you have to ask yourself when you're booking it out. You also have a brand. So if their brand is the quote-unquote counterculture, then you're going to have some rappers, DMX, Cypress Hill, Ice Cube, 
you're going to need some important female voices. Cheryl Crow, Jewel. I think Alanis Morissette played, I think. Um, and then the countercultural music of the time that the quote unquote young people are listening to of a drinking age, let's keep in mind of a drinking age. That's also extremely important. Yeah. Because is, you know, you, you can't be selling uh, the teenage girls alcohol. So that's why you don't want to have NSYNC or Backstreet Boys. Right. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. That's why they, that's why they're not there. Um, is, is corn and Limp biscuit corn and Limp biscuit. Not only were selling out arenas, but they were putting on their own small festivals. There was one they were putting on called family values tour. So when you're booking out a festival, you're just looking at numbers. And when you look at the pole star numbers and you see that, well, these are the people that are filling arenas. Um, and they're bringing the 21 and overs. Of course we want them here. They don't know what they sound like, or do they care? Because the last thing on anybody's mind is a riot. Because, again, these people haven't had riots. Um, another thing that frustrated me was the fact that so much blame was put on kind of the two bands that were the bigger draws. Corn and, and it's, I'm not a fan of the music. They were huge in 1999 i think nookie had came out whatever record that was on was that three dollar bill y'all or whatever like that had just hit yeah um, I, I remember because um i've always you know been a fan of like uh pro wrestling and people can <laughs> say that's low brow of me but uh, you know i don't care um but yeah the, like they were playing like limp biscuit and bands like kid rock and, and rob zombie and so it was like kind of that whole like you know, new metal and like anything that was sort of like aggressive music was real popular at that time. And then people that were, you know, kind of alternative and scary in the late eighties, early nineties are now established rock acts. They're radio acts, Megadeth and Metallica who book in nights. Megadeth actually ends night two or the, the, the last night on stage two, um, when the riots go off, uh, they're like almost classic rock at this point in 1999. And it's not a diss to them. It's just where they were in their careers. So they don't really get blamed the same way that those other two bands get blamed. And keep in mind, a lot of the stuff that jumped off happened at the all night raves, um, Definitely the Red Hot Chili Pepper set. Things get wild. Um, Rage Against the Machine. When they're tearing down, when those people are rioting and destroying the merch uh, trailers and literally stealing things out of the merch trailers, a few people actually got some prison sentences from that. They're yelling out, F you, I won't do what you told me. Granted, that's not what that song's about. <laughs> but that's... But it is kind of telling. You don't you don't hear people yelling about uh, red hot chili peppers and uh, mm -hmm. you know um, rage against the machine when it comes to Woodstock '99. It's these new metal bands. That people like, oh, it's they're the bad ones. Yeah, because you know rage is from L.A. and the Chili Peppers are from L.A. and they are, you know, real bands from real cities. And they're important for whatever reason. Chili peppers are important. So and where are bands like Corn and um, and Limp uh, Biscuit from? 
corns from Bakersfield, you know, uh, for people that don't know, Bakersfield is about two hours from Los Angeles. It's uh, a prison town, <laughs> an oil town, like a dried up oil town. And uh, I, I'll call it Southern California. I'm from the Bay, so that's Southern California. It was five hours south of where I'm from. Um, and it's a it's a poor city. If you know Bakersfield from anything, it's probably Yeehaw and country. Um, it's it's a Grand Ole Opry West. If you're a big country fan, if not, then you probably don't know it because again, it's like a dried up oil town. Um, and Limp Biscuits from Jacksonville. The the last big thing to come out of Jacksonville is what Tim Tebow. So I don't know too many people that are you know looking to jacksonville for being a music mecca i think was it the allman brothers or for jackson or skinner one of those bands is from jacksonville i think but but you know it's not really a music mecca when we talk about you know where important rock bands are from They're, they didn't do the art new york thing they're not from san francisco or la or even chicago um and a lot of that music i think was looked at with disdain from rock critics and i think a lot of it had to do with the imagery of it you know it was very urban and we're still at a time where hip-hop unless it's quote-unquote dangerous that's getting kind of laughed at as well right this is the shiny suit era of hip-hop that quote-unquote important music critics kind of don't really talk about puffy as an important person yeah there was something like, I don't want to say populist, but like it was it was in this sort of, you know, popular culture of the time, the the new metal stuff. Like I said, you know, you could see these bands at wrestling events. They would, you know, play little <laughs> mini shows there or, um, you know, video games even. Like I, I would always hear oh, like yeah. Biscuit in certain games like NHL hits 2003. <laughs> so they were they were literally everywhere. But, you know, they, they were sort of like looked down upon at the same time. Oh, I mean, go back and watch the Nookie video, dude. <laughs> You're going to be like, oh, my God, I can't believe this is an actual video. Um, but there was just this this hatred for this music. And again, I'm not the biggest fan of the music, but I can't look at the music, the makeup of the crowd, the people that put it together, knowing what the festival industry is, and act as if 99 is some sort of anomaly and 69 is not, or act like Generation X in mass is rape culture personified and 69 is not. Is um, that sort of the picture the documentaries paint? Like, oh, you know, yeah. we went from the boomers to this lost, angry generation of yeah. Generation X, and the music combined with that made a dangerous cocktail that led to <laughs> violence. I mean, at one point, at one point they said, uh, at one point they said, uh, well, look at the movies from that. I think maybe that year, that era, and it was like American Pie. Like these guys were watching American Pie. It's like, well, I mean, I would have been around the same age as concert goers. I grew up watching movies like Revenge of the Nerds, which is, you know, definitely has a bit of a rape scene in it where dude, you know, hides himself in the mask and, and, and has, I won't get into it. Watch the Don't movie. they even like, trot out Moby in one of these documentaries? Yeah, he, he loves shitting on new metal. Moby at one point calls it 
the troglodyte faction of metal was new metal. And uh, I was like, man, Moby, that is some high-end snobbery right there. You know, not everything's for me. And it took me a long time to be able to say that. Like, hey, I don't like it, but not everything's for me. I can't really crap on people for digging it. Um, I know people in the genre. Um, and one thing I did appreciate about the genre was I felt it was pretty eclectic in the sense of it really was trying to mix cultures. Um, I don't know if they ever pulled it off <laughs> the way they could have, but there was a lot of hate. I think a lot of the initial hate was, was racist. Um, could you explain that a bit more? Sure. I mean, you really get the, the wigger from new metal. And it allowed people to say the N-word with a W in front of it, and it was okay. Because a lot of the imagery was hip-hop inspired. You know, these guys aren't wearing tight black jeans. You know, they're wearing baggy pants and fubu, and their hair's, their hair's braided. And there's a DJ. And there is a lot of people of color um, in new metal. So the initial backlash from the metal gatekeepers felt very, very racist. Um, I, I was going to say too, I, I feel like, I feel like there's like sort of a class element to this too, like where they're, yes. I mean, ra race and class are very connected yes. a lot of times, but um, yes. you know, I, I remember, you know, I grew up on like industrial metal. So bands like KMFDM and, and ministry. And uh, mm -hmm. I remember people like blaming KMFDM for, fucking columbine and people you know whenever i would say i was into ministry <laughs> oh yeah the big dumb guitars and i'm like I, I think there is like this weird class element where they're like oh this is for like the the lower class people you know this kind of metal music that's just angry and has the big dumb guitars you know there is you know the, i think that snobbery is very class oriented in a weird way uh like i was telling you before we started the show i i always find it interesting when people say to me oh i like all types of music except um uh, you know, country and, and rap. And I'm like, oh, that's that's interesting. I wonder if there's something, what are you trying to say there? And I think it's true yeah. of, of new metal too. So when people oh, yeah. that, you know. And also think of this, JG. Um, new metal is one of those genres that that moniker, and I think 99 Woodstock had a lot to do with it and the way it was portrayed by, by coastal media, coastal elites and media. Um, such a right-wing catchphrase, right? The cultural elites uh, in media uh, because it doesn't have the nostalgia factor 20 plus years later, like hair metal, for example. If you look at some of the biggest tours right now, one of the bigger tours in the United States, an arena tour that's filling up arenas all over the country, is Def Leppard, Motley Crue, Poison, and Joan Jett. Why are these geriatric, old men, Botox, wigs, you know, why are they still rocking out, selling out arenas? There's something about hair metal connected with people. Um, terrestrial radio was still a thing when it was hitting, and TV was still playing videos when it was hitting. People physically owned albums or cassettes or even CDs of that music, so your attachment is different. New metal has a lot of those same things, right? It, it really hit in 94, 95. So people owned 
cassettes and CDs and they went to Ozfest and they went to, to family values and all the bands that are still really relevant have dropped the moniker. Deftones ran away from it to the point where they didn't even tour with Korn. They didn't want to be known as a, as a new metal band. Incubus has kind of changed their sound altogether. And part of that is just growing up. You can't be 17 forever. We're on that ACDC. But um, new metal has this, it's such a pejorative when you say it. And all the names around it, other than the original name that I remember from it, and maybe you remember this was alternative metal. Oh, you mean that alternative metal? Then it was, oh, you mean the rap metal? And by the time you get to new metal, which much like grunge is media creation, I can see someone saying, I'm starting, well, I didn't, I can't even say I can see it. I used to see older cats when I lived in the studio in West Oakland say, oh, I'm kind of into grunge, but I knew what that meant. You liked pop rock of the 90s. <laughs> You're going to have a yarling singer. <laughs> And you're gonna play Soundgarden throwaway riffs. Like I get, I get it, right? Um, I never saw anyone come in and say, "Yeah, we're real new metal inspired." Like no one was saying that. It was is such a bad word. It's it's um, kind of interesting, by the way. Uh, this whole blame the music element of uh, Woodstock '99, because I mean, it's not in a way, it's not that far removed from how. And I have my criticisms of like the 60s counterculture. And I think based yeah, on your article, yeah. you do too. But like, yeah. it, it's very interesting because, I, you know, I think in the late 60s, there was this like backlash against, uh, you know, like 60s counterculture type music. And there was this sort of demonization of the counterculture uh, when things like the, you know, the the Tate LaBianca murders and the Manson family and yeah. Altamont, there is this sense of like, people start blaming, you know, oh, it's the 60s rock music. It's driving our kids crazy, you know? And, and of course, later on, it becomes like the established thing that everyone wants to remember, peace and love. And I'm not, I don't think the music caused the Manson murders or anything like that. But it, it's kind of interesting, right? That, you know, the way that that stuff was demonized when it first came out, it gets demonized in 99 when this Woodstock happens and everyone's always going, oh, uh, it's obviously the music that's doing this. Well, think, think about cults, right? And think about the big, the big cult murders that happened in the 60s and, and late 70s. And there's something to be said about a, a, a libertarian streak. And I write this in an article that runs through hippie culture. Um, keep in mind, only... Only 50,000 or so people broke through the barricades in 69. They all came there with money. They knew what it was. There's a conference that Michael Lang has with one of the promoters where they're debating whether or not they should let him in. And someone says, well, they brought money. They wanted to go up to people and say, hey, we need to take a ticket. If you don't have a ticket, we need to get six bucks from you. Michael Lang said, if we do that, there's going to be a riot on it. Let fuck it, let him in for free. It's a free show. That gets applauded as some sort of like great thing. But why did he, uh, a supposed hippie, feel so comfortable making this calculation around his peace-loving brothers? He knew had they been charged, if they broke through that fence, they were going to tear shit down. 
So it's like, nah, man, they're already in. So that right there should kind of dispel the idea that these cats are, you know, spiritually just so different. A lot of things with the hippie movement and the boomers. You have, I don't know if you've ever watched a show called The Boondocks. The I cartoon love the Boondocks. That's probably my favorite you, animated show. Yeah. Do, do you remember the episode where they were teasing the grandpa because he was saying he was part of the civil rights movement? They're like, "Were you really part of the civil rights movement?" Yes. Yeah, I do remember and, that. And he, and he and he actually didn't show up to the record. He went to go get a raincoat instead. And and that's kind of how I think about the hippies. There's a lot of things going on around them. There's women's rights, Chicano rights, American Indian movement, Black Power, civil rights movement. Um, various socialist movements going on. There's a lot of things going on. Not all of those people are involved with it. Right. Adjacent to it. But they all get to be a part of it. So it's kind of foolish for us to look at Woodstock 69 and assume that it was this socialist commune for three days. Right. Right. You know, the Who writes Teenage Wasteland after seeing <laughs> the 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 crowd you know, people fighting over what little bit they had. So 69 was always about selling the counterculture. That's all it ever right. was. It was never about peace and love. It was about selling the counterculture. So why would 99 be any different? The yeah. motives yeah. never changed. I, I guess my point, though, was I think it's interesting because I think there's always been this blame the music thing. Even mm -hmm. when you go back mm -hmm. to the 60s, oh, all this counterculture stuff, it's because yeah. the evil music. Or in 99, mm -hmm. it's because the evil music. When really, it's much more complicated than that. A lot of it does have to do with, you know, I guess, uh, capitalism in a lot of ways. It's all... That's bruh, that, that's the real issue in some ways. Bruh, bruh, isn't it all... Think about it. I tell people, if you're a libertarian, Woodstock 99 is your dream project. Whoever brought more food as a vendor, because they're, you know, vendor limits, all that stuff is different back then. First of all, festivals were cash only back then. So for tax purposes, <laughs> people used to love those days. They still talk about the good old days when everything was cash only. But what that means is in 1999, opposed to 1969, you have people waiting in very long lines to get money out. Let's, again, in 94, you just ran to get supplies from the store and you came back. Right, you went in, in through that little hole in the fence. You went in through the hole again. and you were like, ah, we got there. Um, in, in 99, you're stuck inside. Now, if food vendors are running out of food, they're running out of, of drinks, whoever brought more or whoever had the ability to bring more in you can charge more and you're going to. It wasn't like production found out that the water tent was charging eight bucks for water and said, no, I don't think people understand how much money food vendors pay. They pay to be there. Everything is run by a third party. So it's not like the festival is controlling everything like Pinocchio. Um, you're supposed to have eyes on everything. And it seems like they cut corners where historically they never had problems. 
the first Woodstock, actually they had a, a week long cleanup and again, 80 lawsuits due to what the concert goers did to that farm. 94 also was a bit of a, a debacle with the, uh, with the porta potties and toilets. They never saw security and trash is an issue. Woodstock 69 security is the last thing they do. They got like 300 off-duty cops to show up and half of those guys left. So you really didn't have security there. Um, if it wasn't for the National Guard airlifting people that were overdosing and getting heat stroke, way more people would have died than just the three in 69. Um, and the only reason why the National Guard wanted to even get involved is they wanted to raid the place because they knew all the dopers were there. Um, in 99, again, you think you have these problems solved because they, you never looked at them as problems in the first place. But you're, again, you're saying the, the documentaries mm -hmm. in question that we mm -hmm. were talking about earlier, they don't mm -hmm. really get into this. It sounds like they blame it more on I mean, when they say when when people pull the blame the music card, and I'm sorry, I keep going yeah. back to the blame the music yeah. thing, but it really is like a weird reactionary take, and people don't realize yeah. that I think a lot of times because ultimately, when you're blaming the music, you're kind of saying, "Oh, we have this cultural uh, degradation going on; the culture is degenerating, and that's why this is happening." You know, um, it, it's like people that are, that would complain about Elvis and rock and roll. Uh, and be like, well, people should be listening to, you know, classical music, Mozart and Beethoven. You know? <laughs> like, it's a very reactionary argument. Oh, the culture is degrading itself. And I think those two documentaries combine that sort of like the culture is being degraded by this horrible, aggressive music with, uh, you know, oh, crass commercialization and greed is bad, too. Yeah. And and you want to be like, well, the Woodstock was a commodified brand. Yeah, you're saying though that that's that's I guess what's different yeah. in your analysis is you're saying, you know, I, I don't know, you guys are romanticizing '69, yeah, romanticizing Woodstock '69. It was always about making money. <laughs> it was always about making money, and then I did have to do a kind of a tacit defense of new metal because I felt like these people, if if they're so violent, right? If these people are so bad, when we think about corn and Limp Biscuit. They do their own festival. They played another large festival, not as large as Woodstock, but Ozfest. They never had these problems. It's not like young women didn't attend Ozfest. We don't have the, the rapes. We don't have the deaths. We don't have the assaults. And we definitely don't have the destruction of property. So is it really the music? Is it really the price of water or is it kind of a combination of a lot of things? First and foremost, you sold me a product that it's about peace and love. And I paid for a ticket and I want my money's worth. So basically you had a bunch of people that wanted to talk to the manager. <laughs> when you think about it, <laughs> because Altamont, that you bring up Altamont, which I think is really important to bring up. Same uh, logistical failures as Woodstock four months prior moving literally week of the stage is built too short. That's why one of the hell's angels punches. I think the guitar player of Jefferson starship and knocks him unconscious because the dude is saying, Hey, stop roughing up the crowd. Um, the hell's angel security was, uh, something that, uh, was his name. I think Mick Jagger won it. And 
why would they want to do Altamont if they felt that Woodstock was a failure? You have to feel that Woodstock is a success. Again, information is not traveling as quick as it does now. There's not JG's and Jason's doing podcasts five days after the event, <laughs> having a critical analysis on its failure and its um, capitalization on a, on a counterculture and why it's nothing more than a cash grab from rich people and not an idealistic uh, uh, hippie love fest. None of that shit has traveled. So the only thing people know is that was the most badass show in the world and 400,000 people were there. Let's do it again. Let's do it everywhere. By the time you get to Altamont, it's like, oh, we can't really do it everywhere. It's, this, this is a failed scene. So in, in regards to the two documentaries, I think one is called Trainwreck Woodstock 99 mm -hmm. and uh, Music Box, right? Was the other one? Yeah. Uh, I forget the name of the other one. Probably a similar name. Yeah, yeah. So what, um, is there anything you think they get right? Like, are they right about crass commercialization? Are they like, what, is there anything that they get right? That's, or That's what the music industry is. That's true. <laughs> this, this doesn't happen. Um, you don't, Michael Jackson isn't the Michael Jackson that we all know without Pepsi. Beyonce isn't the Beyonce that we all know without, was it Coca-Cola that sponsored her? Jay-Z isn't even the Jay-Z in suburban America without the Sprite Liquid Mix Tour in the late 90s. Corporate sponsorship has been massive in music. Tab Hunter, the actor, is the reason why, was it, is it Universal Records, I think it is? Because... He had a deal with another company and he had, he was under movie contract with, I, I want to say it was universal. I could be wrong, but it's a movie studio. And they were like, look, dude, you make everything for us. We own every part of you. So he had like a couple number one hits on this label. And they're like, no, 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 no. We're, we're going to create a whole records division <laughs> because of you. And I want to say it was universal. You might want to double check that. I can't remember which one it was. So, there's always been a corporate element to music. I'd like to buy the world a Coke. Right. <laughs> that commercial horrifies me to this day. So to think that it's just this, when, when, when you go to like Warp Tour is dead, but every festival I work at or used to work at, I don't, I don't do it anymore. Um, every stage is sponsored by a corporation. Corporations dictate everything, the size of the cups, what beer you're going to sell, um, where you're going to sell it. Um, it's, it's foolish to think that Woodstock 99 is a deviation of 69. No one knew. If it wasn't for Polydent, you don't even get 69 because, again, one of the promoters is an heir to, to the throne of, of uh, I believe it was Polydent. And that's how he was able to bail out the, uh, the partnership when they got hit with, uh, with all those lawsuits. And they were in the hole 2.4 million, I think, after 69. Which, I mean, think about 1969 dollars, you're in the hole 
over $2 million. Like that's insane. And to be able to be like, well, I had to call my, my dad. Like that's, that's pretty cool that you could do that at 69. So the crass commercialization of music, I mean, we didn't know what it was going to look like um, in 99, but it was definitely happening in 1969. Um, how, how would you have, what was that? Oh, and 94. Oh, yeah. And 94. So if you were doing a documentary on Woodstock 99, what angle would you have taken on it? How would you make a Woodstock 99 documentary? What, what would you hone in on? I would, I would throw Firefest in there as well, because I think, you know, we've been kind of hinting at it, but let's just like talk about it. There's a class element to festivals. The racial makeup in 1969 is very similar to the racial makeup in 1999. It's very, very arrogant to think that only frat bros were there in 99 and there wasn't frat bros there in 69. College was free. <laughs> you think there weren't frat dudes there in, in 69? Um, I would I would add that element that, you know, these music festivals are not so much about a communal gathering as people would like to think they are, but it's more of a gathering of people within a certain um, demographic that have a certain amount of money. And it's always a cash grab. It's always a cash grab. Um, they were trying in Woodstock 99 to have it be a more interactive footprint. It didn't work. They didn't really plan that out too well. Because um, remember, Coachella happens later that year and no one tears anything up. And a lot of that has to do with the footprint of Coachella. Coachella is all about commerce. Every year I've been there, um, even the Beyonce year, which was like a record breaking year, numbers wise. Um, it's not like every single person there was watching Beyonce. They're buying beer, they're buying merchandise, they're buying food. You know, people are constantly spending money at those things and they're 24 hours. So you said you've been on the inside of some of these music festivals. What are some yeah. of the ins and outs that maybe people don't know about, you know? Uh, as far as like, what, what's the biggest misperception people have about how music festivals are run? I mean, is it just simply that, 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 that it's all about ticket sales? Okay. And that's, that's a, a part of it. That's a part of it, but it's more about food and beverage. Um, and, and selling a lot of alcohol, selling a lot of alcohol, <laughs> because when you think about music festivals, you know, you don't see a lot of festivals with like tons of 14 year old kids. Granted, they go to them. I'm sure they go to them, but you don't want them there. It's a problem. When I was at Coachella, I remember um, the main, the, the, the main accountant who was my direct boss was bitching about the layout because in California you have to have 21 and over stuff fenced off. I mean, it's a massive fencing off and you're creating gigantic beer gardens, right? Beer areas, gigantic consumption areas, but still it's fenced off. And people don't like to be fenced off from the phone. Um, now, what's interesting too, by the way, is that uh, mm -hmm. Woodstock, I mean, as you point out in the article, I mean, it's 
its relevance is sort of becoming more restricted to baby boomers. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I knew people growing up. I, I'm kind of glad to see that people aren't obsessing over the mm. 60s bands anymore. Because I remember when I was in um, in high school, people were still wearing like, you know, these 60s band t-shirts. And I'm like, that that's cool and all if that's your thing. But it, it just felt like a boomer cultural hegemony. And it, that's kind that. of fading now. But still, what's interesting is Woodstock, as you point out, it, it's real legacy is sort of, you know, being the template yes. for uh, music festivals of today. Yes, but it's, it becomes the template of what not to do. And Coachella becomes the template of what everybody wants. And bigger than Coachella being the template now, there's one called Bottle Rock um, in Napa, which is an even better template um, when you talk about money. If this is insider knowledge, okay, I guess. Uh, it's when you look at the profitability of festivals, you look at something called dollar per head. So you look at all the money you brought in, how much did we make per the people that walked through the door? And one of the bigger dollar per head festivals is called Bottle Rock. And it's a higher end kind of wine and high end food festival in Napa, California, um, near some vineyards. And I think Metallica played this last year. They tend to have older bands. The last year I was there, um, um, I think it was one of Tom Petty's last performances I got to see. Um, they bring an older crowd that has money. There's $60 glasses of wine sold there. Morimoto Sushi is there. They have a whole food stage where like high-end chefs come and make stuff on stage with like sometimes local ball players. Um, I think I was there when you're like, it was Snoop and Martha Stewart had a stage <laughs> making food. It was kind of weird. Um, and there's like a $200,000 or something like that, like all exclu all inclusive VIP area. So that on a dollar per head level is a, is a huge moneymaker. It only holds about 30,000 people. That means that it's less production costs for everybody all around. You're dealing with older folks, so it's a lot easier to deal with. You don't need as much security. And, you know, you're talking about just high-end vineyards. So they tried to do it in Southern California. It didn't work. But, you know, don't ever look at Firefly as some sort of aberration. That's kind of what people want. They want exclusivity, you know, tons of VIP access that I can charge more money for. I mean, that's... At Bottle Rock, they would tell food vendors, okay, this is Bottle Rock, so now you guys need to up your prices another 20 to 25% than what you usually do at festivals um, because now our prices are going to be higher for you because when you're a food vendor, you have to pay to be there and the food and beverage people are taking a cut of everything you, you, uh, you make and all of your beverages, you have to buy through them. So even if you know that soda is a dollar at the BevMo or whatever, you got to buy it from the food and beverage people for you know $3. That's the agreement that you walk into. So most vendors, unless you do something really simple, like deep fry French fry or something like that, um, a lot of them don't make money. So I, I know you said 
Woodstock was sort of the the template for what not to do. But mm-hmm. it is sort of like the predecessor to the more successful examples, right? Like Coachella, right? Or you, you kind in of a, say that in the article. You say, um, in a, yeah, in the sense of like selling this idea that like we're gonna we're gonna have this grand event, right? We're gonna have a grand event, and it's gonna be all about music and togetherness, and we're all gonna rock out and have a good time. No one talks about the US Festival. There's like 400,000 people in San Bernardino for the US Festival. You know, that launches the career of some iconic hair metal bands like Motley Crue and Quiet Riot. Um, but no one talks about it. But it's equally, in my opinion, as important. Um, maybe because they only do it that one year. Wozniak took a, a financial bath on that. I think there was like 400,000 people in the desert for that. Um, no one tore anything down when Judas Priest played. <laughs> you know, it's, I was going to say it's funny because uh, what we're talking about now reminds me of how people talk to me about um, things like Burning Man, where people are like, Burning Man is all about togetherness, <laughs> peace, love. And I'm like, the Burning Man is like big money behind it now. I mean, I don't, I, now, I think yeah. it's much more about, you know, um, how are we going to make money off these people? It's, but people don't like it when you tear away the fairy tale image. No, they don't. They really don't. But they don't. Older people may not like that when you talk about that era. But again, when we talk about the '60s, we definitely have to talk about that whole like I'm I'm in it for self. What 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 self gratification can I get out of this? There's a reason why you get the rise of the guru in the '60s. You know. I, I was gonna say, happen. I was gonna oh, go say ahead. real quick in that regard. Uh, it, it's funny because I've always argued with people about the whole psychedelic culture type stuff, especially the the mm. newer psychedelic bros like Joe Rogan. I'm not against people using psychedelics or whatever, you know. But mm-hmm. it's uh, it's interesting to me because the way that that people talk about psychedelics, I find it very telling. You know, like you'll hear the <laughs> Joe Rogan crowd. You know, like the Joe Rogan guys are always like. Dude, I took DMT and I saw the answers of the universe. And I and and they're always talking about their own, like, oh, their their sense of self-discovery. You know, it's never mm-hmm. like connected to anything related to like we or us or you yeah. know, just social anything social. It's like no. I saw the true reality of the universe after doing DMT for five minutes. You know, it's it's very like egocentric in a way. And I, I think that's very interesting. I, I do think you see that more with um, there's elements of that within like the the '60s counterculture that I think people overlook that aspect of it. Overlook the hell out of it, and then the narrative gets written that it's just these kind of crazy Svengali's, right? It's just Manson and his maniacal mind. He gets made out to be way more of a genius, you know, than he really is. Um, because he could only really exist in that era. You know, I don't know if that quote unquote genius plays off, but you know, there's another guy right now that I just discovered on the internet that makes me laugh and angry at the same time, this Andrew Tate character. I'm not familiar. He's some dude that used to be a a mixed martial arts fighter. And now he's some sort of guru it has this like online university. He makes some stupid amount of money a month. 
with his online university. One of those kind of, uh, what do you call the people that pick up women? Pick up artists? You know what? I think I know who you're talking about now. Bald cat. He's like a bald cat. Yeah, because, okay, so last month when I was in, uh, I was visiting my hometown uh, in Pittsburgh, and I'm in this Uber, and this guy is just like, have you ever heard of Andrew Tate? And he's showing me these videos, and I'm just like, oh, God, I'm trapped. I can't get him to stop talking Have you heard the good word of Andrew Tate? I, I... Someone said something about him and I watched something about him and I was like, and it wasn't one of those Andrew Tate's a horrible guy. I literally watched his promotional stuff and I was like, this is fascinating because it's, it's stupid. Like how could anyone think that this guy is serious, but there's something to be said about living in a world all about you. Um, Someone asked me if I thought that if Woodstock 99 had camera phones, would the damage have been worse? I said there would have been no damage at all. Everybody could have made up the reality of how wonderful it was. How many people do we know have horrible days, but they take a picture of them playing with their kid that they just yelled at? (laughs) They're like, oh, I love Cecil. He's so great. Just shook the shit out of Cecil. He's got baby shaking syndrome now. But, you know, um, I, I, again, working at Coachella, there's that big Ferris wheel that's so iconic for people. And I'm, I, I say this on every time I talk about this, I'm so mad of all the pictures I've taken. I don't take that many pictures when, I, when I'm working, when I was working, but I didn't, I wanted to take a picture of people taking selfies in front of that Ferris wheel. There's this massive line, JG, <laughs> motherfuckers, making sure their flower crown is just right, making sure the sun is hitting just right, getting that I was there Coachella selfie festival. You know, they're not taking pictures of the overflowed porta potties. They're not taking pictures of overpriced food. Um, they're not taking pictures of how they couldn't see the show they wanted to see because they were, you know, four miles away on another stage lost trying to find the stage they were looking for like they couldn't show how they, the the showers weren't working or whatever was happening like you know that's not what you want to show also apparently they didn't want to show uh the red hot chili peppers playing the song fire while everything was going to hell <laughs> that's an app that's an interesting choice to play that song <laughs> You want to talk about a tone-deaf group. They literally stopped the show because of the fires. They asked the dudes, hey, can you calm the crowd down? And I get that they probably rehearsed that because who thinks that's going to happen? But you're the Red Hot Chili Peppers in 1999. You're, what, five, six records deep in your catalog? I'm sure there's another cover or something they could have pulled out. They could have pulled out anything. Like, this is one from the club days. There's there's enough material those guys have under their belts. They could have pulled out something. They could have jammed uh, if they wanted to, but they didn't give a fuck. So before you know, we close out, mm-hmm. um, or were, were you going to add something to that? No, I was going to say that they already got their deposit uh, before they even landed, and they knew they were getting paid. Um, once the show was over, they were contractually obligated, so they just didn't care. I like the lines you have in the article where you say, uh, 
why don't we blame Jimi Hendrix and his dissonant ode to counterculture America for causing hippies to trash the place? At the same time, both documentaries, while condemning the quote unquote entitled subculture that spawned new metal, leave out the fact that the hippie culture was itself in many ways a self-centered journey of self-discovery and self-fulfillment. And of course, j just so people understand, you're not like, you're not blaming Jimi Hendrix either. I don't think you're blaming the new metal. No, fans. no. Yeah, no, no, but no. It, it's interesting because that that little paragraph there brought to mind to me, you know, I, I used to be into like a lot of that 60s counterculture stuff when I was growing up, like looking like that the nostalgia effect, I guess. Yeah. Uh, you know, even though I wasn't alive for the 60s, but, you know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I used to be into like reading Timothy Leary and stuff like that. I, I learned a few <laughs> things from yeah. Timothy Leary. I think he was, you know, I, I've always liked his line, uh, question authority and, and all that stuff. But Leary also, there's something very, in hindsight, creepy about his big motto of uh, turn on, tune in, drop out. Mm -hmm. Basically, he's saying like, oh, just go inward, you know, like drop mm -hmm. out of society. And I, I mm -hmm. mean, it, it is like it's not exactly a line that lines up with like socialism or, you know, like mm -mm. leftist values. And it, I mean, and Leary mm -mm. ended up supporting like Ron Paul in the eighties and the libertarian party. So, I, I mean, there is this element of like um, the sort of self-centered journey of self-discovery that you talk about in that sixties culture. Do you think more and more people are going to start looking at that and, and trying to, you know, chip away at the sort of fairy tale I hope. I mean, ultimately, I want people to look at capitalism because I think that's the the, the, the problem, the root, yeah. right? Because being able to repackage 69 and Woodstock and the people behind it as being this massive win and the pinnacle of, of a moment, of an era. And even though four months later, the, some of the same people part of Altamont we forget that that's the end of the 60s that's the dark side but the dark side was always there because capitalism was always there these people were not all uh you know communists and socialists we have to remember and this is the part that's kind of hard to digest for a lot of us is that sometimes these ideologies are passing fads you know the Communist Manifesto may be serious to you today at, you know, 18 to 25, but will it be serious to you after you get your first grown-up job and you start getting all the free stuff sprinkled in and you get healthcare benefits? Um, so there's a reason why hippies become yuppies so smoothly. Atari Democrats so smoothly. Yeah, that's yeah. very true. I'm thinking of um one one of the yippies. I think it was yeah, Jerry Rubin ended up becoming like a Reagan mm -hmm. Republican. Yeah. <laughs> a perfect example of that. What's dude uh what's the I can't think of the guy's name from Apple now. I'm a burn on the blank. The CEO of Apple that died. Oh, Steve Jobs. Yeah, Jesus Christ. I can't remember the guy's name as I talked to you on an iPhone. Uh hippie capitalists that's so, what silicon valley was full of so in, in that regard I, I guess the way i want to close this is just talking about that for a minute since mm. when i say that i mean i think there's certain figures like steve jobs uh that try to sell us this 
oh, I'm, I'm actually like the good face of capitalism. <laughs> like I'm the peace yeah. and love cap. I even go on like YouTube now and get these commercials from like PR companies that are like, we're doing good work. We're not just a PR company. We're trying to save the world. And I'm like, I, maybe I'm just cynical, but I don't know. I think you guys are trying to make money. Uh, so how do you think we break through that sort of, um, oh, well, this is the, there, there's a good happy face of capitalism uh, and, and we're representing it, the Steve Jobs of the world. How do you think we sort of break through that, you know, um, self-promoting sort of image? With the quickness in which everything is commodified, especially language, again, I think, I, I, I think trying to show this piece and showing people that, look, the thing that you think is the 60s in a nutshell was just a commodification of your 60s, of your moment. Um, so now we have to think of like words. We're disruptors. We're disrupting the market. That's what Uber was. That's what all tech platforms are. We are disrupting the taxi industry. We are a platform for drivers and riders. And don't mind the fact that we're destroying labor law throughout the country <laughs> and creating more and more economically precarious situations for our drivers who are just, they just were sitting around driving people for free. We just gave them the platform. Like, no, you didn't. You created a space you, you quote unquote disrupted the market, making a change, doing good by doing good. You know, Anand Girdadas, who is not a socialist, I think writes about this very well in his book, Winners Take All. Um, you know, whether you think he's a lib or not, I definitely think he is, but I think there's some really good critique in Winner Take All about the co-optation of language and the co-optation of uh, uh, doing good by doing good. And where people at one point in time got into politics to change the world. We're just now getting out of this era where people were getting into tech to make a billion dollars to then try to change the world. After I destroyed it, I'll try to make a little bit of this destruction go away. Now we're seeing some people try to get into politics. Um, younger people get into politics, you know, the rise of the AOCs and, We'll see how that turns out. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer in, uh, we had Daniel Bestron one day and he said the, the right wing used a little bit of Marxist-Leninism in, uh, <laughs> in their strategy over this 50-plus year counter-revolution and definitely took a localized approach to power. And there's a reason why Roe got overturned. Um, and it's not just Brett Kavanaugh. The Federalist Society is is powerful. Um, so, how do you how, yeah? How do we stop the co optation of 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 language and movements because it happens so so quickly? So, I want to thank you again, Jason Miles, for coming on Parallaxes. Anything else you want to say in closing? And can you let my listeners know uh, how they can listen to this is Revolution. I want to say, first of all, thank you for having me, first and foremost. Um, uh, this is revolutionpodcast.com. has the links to all of our audio uh, and video uh, podcasts. We stream every Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, 6 p.m. Pacific time. Um, and I'm doing a video essay 
the biggest undertaking I've ever done to the point where I had to bring in filmmaker help. And I think you'll like this, JG. It is literally about wrestling and kayfabe. I believe oh, right we're, living in the, we're living in the era of kayfabe. So uh, that that's what it's all about. It's a, It's been my biggest undertaking in video essay so far. And when you said you like wrestling, I was like, oh, you're going to love this. Right on, right on. We'll have to have you back on for that. Um, so thank you again, Jason Miles. Thank you, JG. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jason Miles and that you'll check out the This Is Revolution podcast. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like right. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.